From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. She was one of the first COVID patients in Colorado to come off a ventilator alive. Now, nearly a year into the pandemic, we check back in with Ravi Turman of Aurora. I was a cancer survivor before. I'm a very positive person. Even my blood is B positive. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So for me, it's like, well, it happened. So now where am I going from here? Then Purplish takes on transportation, plus how the Peace Corps is adapting to COVID and changing times. And later, some COVID counter-programming. DJs around the state share songs that have helped them through. This is one that I tell everybody, favorite song of 2020, hands down. I listen to it all the time. Suéltalo. La Dame Blanche. Hey, it's me, Elsa Chang from NPR. Did you recently donate to this station? Maybe it was a spur of the moment thing. You heard people on air saying how important it is to give, and then you thought, yeah, I can do that. Or maybe you give reliably every year or monthly as a sustainer. Whether this was your first gift or your 50th, thanks for supporting Public Radio. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. For 10 days, Ravi Turman of Aurora was on a ventilator and in a medically induced coma. She had COVID-19. At the time, she was only vaguely aware of her surroundings. I wondered at one point, am I dead? Is this what dead is like? I was hearing different voices saying different things. And some of them I could distinguish. Some of it sounded like uh, they were about to prepare for my funeral. At one point, I started thinking, no, I can't be dead because as I understand death, that's a lack of consciousness. If I'm thinking these thoughts, I can't be dead. That's Terman speaking with me last April. She is one of the first patients in Colorado to be successfully taken off a ventilator. Well, as we mark nearly a year of the pandemic in the state, we're checking back in with the 52-year-old Terman. And Ravi, welcome back to the program. Great. It's glad to be, I'm glad to be back. <laughs> How is it to hear those words played back? Wow. I It feels like uh, I'm in a totally different mindset than I was then even. Um, it's just amazing just hearing those words because I, I kind of almost forgot about it to be honest. (laughs) Does that mean you're moving on? Uh, What does that mean? Yes and no. Um, uh, I'm I'm in a new chapter of my life as it stands right now. I'm an official Colorado. (laughs) I have an address. (laughs) Nice. So um, although uh, for me, it's like I still have things I deal with physically. Um, Some new things have popped up. But um, it's just a reminder, I think, is where I'm at, uh, of where I was at one point. Um, Because, yeah, it it was, I was very concerned about whether or not I was dead or not. Let me just say, by way of background, that I think you moved here from Indiana, correct? Yes. Yeah. And soon after arriving in Colorado, you started feeling maybe just a little off, but you explained to us that you thought maybe that was the altitude. Um, And it Mm -hmm. was actually 
your daughter who urged you to check into the hospital, uh, mm-hmm. she's a TSA officer trained to look for the signs of COVID. And she kept mm-hmm. remarking upon how your eyes looked. Mm-hmm. Yep. You thought yep. That- she said that, um, my, your mom, your eyes don't look right. And she said, and you, this, you got a fever and your cough sounds too deep in your chest. She was like, mom, something's not right. Something is really not right. I believe you have COVID. And uh, she said, you really got to go to the hospital. And I was like, eh, it's just a cold. It's just a bad cold. I kept shaking, shrugging it off. Mm. Shortly after you arrived at the hospital, though, your lungs collapsed. And as I said, you spent 10 days on a ventilator. So the, the last yeah. time we spoke, you were having a little trouble walking. And I, I think it was hard for you to get your hands above your head. So yeah. you said you've got some lingering effects and some new effects. T- talk about those. Yeah. Um, well, um, as to the new effects, um, some things happened to my body recently that I didn't know could happen. Um, I had a problem with my esophagus. My esophagus was having spasms. Um, and there, that that is similar to what people would think is a heart attack. Hmm. Um, it really hurts. It's very painful. Um, I've also lost hair. Um, I'm still losing hair, but not as a, as a a fast rate as I was, uh, maybe six months ago. Um, I've lost about totaling about maybe 50 to 60% of my hair that I had previous to COVID. Um, I've done some other things too. I've lost teeth, which they told me in the hospital that that could, could, and probably would happen. Um, I've lost two full, two teeth, two molars, um, since then, um, different other things. Uh, I know that I can't walk as far as I used to, but I am doing better than I was. Uh, I can lift my arms, no problem, over my head now. Um, so th- some things are better, but some things are a little different. Boy, COVID-19, such a mystery. So they prepared you for the possibility of losing teeth and do they know if the esophageal stuff is related to COVID or what? Yes, they believe that it is because there's only two ways that you can get it, get that issue. And one of them, the main one, is a serious virus. Huh. The other one I didn't qualify for. I can't remember what it is. But there's another reason why you can get that issue with the esophagus. But they said the other was a virus. Back in April, you brought up stigma. Ravi, you said, everybody's afraid of me because I've had the virus. Do you still feel stigma or have enough people experienced COVID-19 now that that has dissolved somewhat? To some degree, yes. Um, It depends on how they hear it when I say I've had COVID. Because some people here have COVID, especially with the masks on. (laughs) I see. Uh, But uh, so they get really concerned when I when I say I've had COVID. I say and I have to repeat it. I had it. I don't have it anymore. And they're like, oh, oh, okay. Hmm. Uh, But I think a lot of the stigma is gone um, simply because so many people have had it now. People are, I think, are more accepting of the fact that you had it. In addition to beating COVID. You're a cancer survivor, and I mm-hmm. I wonder how you think these experiences combined have changed you, are changing you. Both, actually. I think that it has changed me in a lot of ways, both of the situations, um, but they also are changing me. Um, I'm, I feel like I'm evolving 
in a in a lot of in a lot of ways, uh, both mentally, um, physically, and spiritually. There's some things that I've had to accept about my body uh, because it's still in the process. Um, me being me talking about cancer, um, the cancer was different than this, but similar, simply because I had I was in a coma then too. Oh. Um, yeah, I, so I've had two comas in my lifetime. It was only three days in um, with the cancer situation, but um, so I have some relational kind of thing in that regard. Um, the cancer I bounced back from a lot faster than the COVID. Um, I think that cancer, believe it or not, was easier on me than the COVID. Hmm. Um, so I've had a lot of time to introspectly think about um, how I felt after the can the coma with the cancer. And how I feel now after the coma with COVID. It's interesting that they both begin with the letter C, by the way. But <laughs> so I've got the two C's in my life. But um, yeah, so they they relate in a lot of ways, but they have changed me. Um, it's deepened my faith in God. It's deepened my my uh, relational things. I feel more connected to people than I did before, and um, even more than I did when I first came out of the coma. Um, I felt that way before, but I feel even stronger about it now. Um, I feel better. Um, 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 I guess you want to say, I, I, I still want to go to connections because I feel like um, the connections to God for me and the connections to people are really strong and growing stronger every single day. So that has um, deepened. I don't know how to describe it any other than that. COVID-19 survivor Ravi Terman of Aurora there. She's one of the first Coloradans to successfully come off a ventilator. The term long hauler doesn't just apply to truckers anymore. In the COVID era, it refers to folks who struggle for months after getting sick. CPR's Claire Cleveland has been telling their stories and following the limited research into their experiences. And today, Claire revisits one of her sources. Ty Godwin has had shortness of breath, occasional fevers, malaise, and restless legs at night for an entire year. Last January, he traveled internationally for work. When he got home, he had mild COVID-19 symptoms, but there were no tests available. When I first spoke to Godwin, he was on day 93 of having a fever. He was struggling to breathe, to keep up with his job, and to figure out what was wrong. I was a marathon runner and a triathlete before this. I can't, I'm out of breath right now, but... I can't exercise. I've had nights where I wake up out of breath. He's an example of the one in three people who will experience COVID-19 symptoms for longer than two weeks, and one of a growing number of people who experiences symptoms for many weeks or even months. There's still no formal diagnosis for what's now called long COVID, nor is there a treatment. But there are clinics that have popped up across the state and country. There's one at National Jewish Health in Denver and another in Fruta on the Western Slope. While the health impacts have challenged Godwin, he says there's a layer of depression on top of it all. He's not alone in struggling with his mental health. I cry way more than I should at my age because <laughs> the emotions hit you. Am I going to be around for life events? <laughs> 
I have a lot more thoughts about my mortality and depression is, is real. In a survey done by UC Health Memorial Hospital in Colorado Springs, long COVID patients reported distress, anxiety, depression, and a lot of fear. Dr. Robert Lamb led the study. One in five patients that are infected with COVID-19 end up having a mental health diagnosis within the next three months of their recovery. So that, I think, is particularly disturbing. In the coming years, much of the conversation around COVID-19 will be about recovery. But for long haulers like Godwin, he's just focusing on getting better. I'm a marathon runner and I'm mile 20 and I've got six miles to go. Today, Godwin's on medical leave from work and will soon travel to the Mayo Clinic in New York in hopes of more answers. I'm Claire Cleveland, CPR News. Transportation could be one of the biggest issues state lawmakers tackle this session, which is why our transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner joined Purplish, CPR's politics podcast. Your hosts this week are Andrew Kenny and Ben Berkland. It does seem like every year state lawmakers talk about wanting to put more money into transportation. <laughs> There's bipartisan agreement on the problem. And Nate, can you just put it into perspective what the state's transportation needs are right now? Well, just to put a finer point on what the problem is, like the, the most obvious example is traffic, right? Like I think we all have some experience with this of sitting on I-25 or whatever. Um, and that goes back to the state's population growth, right? The, a lot of people have moved here in the last couple of decades. And the way that the state has grown in terms of, you know, new developments is mostly out. It's pretty sprawly. And that puts a lot of pressure on uh, the roads that we do have, I-70, I-25. But it's bad in other ways too, like safety. More than a thousand people died in the Denver area in uh, traffic crashes over a five-year period earlier wow. this decade, right? So safety is another piece of this. And really the third leg of the stool here is multimodal transportation, transit, buses, trains, things like that. And what we know is that the state's largest transit system, RTD, in the Denver area, that was suffering even before the pandemic. They had a lot of budget problems. And since the pandemic, it's gotten even worse. So, um, you know, to shore that up in some way, I'm not exactly sure how, but that could be really key here, too. So I'm guessing, though, Nate, like a lot of state issues, this comes back to funding, right? Either the question of not having enough or depending who you ask, maybe not using it right. What are we looking at for the funding question? So just to give you a brief history here, a key part of the Colorado Department of Transportation's budget is the gas tax. Um, they get some money from the feds, but the state gas tax is a key part of that. Um, That's what I that, pay for a gallon of gas, like an extra handful of cents, right? Right. 22 cents a gallon. Uh, that has not moved since 1991. <laughs> and in that, in that time... Right. Inflation has gone up. So the purchasing power of a dollar has gone down. Vehicles are getting more fuel efficient. Right. So what that adds up to is state doesn't have as much money as it used to, mm -hmm. um, you know, once you adjust for inflation and things like that. So there have been some attempts to rectify that. Uh, there have been, I can think of three or four ballot measures going back to the 1990s to raise transportation dollars. Those have all failed. Um, and where that's left the state is the legislature will, you know, find some money here and there to give to CDOT. There was a big piece of legislation a couple of years ago, more than a billion dollars. But really, there's been no systemic change to the system. That's why we have sort of this chronic underfunding. Um, so CDOT has a $5 billion 10-year plan, but only about a third of that is funded at this point. I want to know more about what it actually looks like to be underfunded. I feel like I've 
paid some attention to this issue over the years and I constantly hear like, look at how much better Utah does than us. It's always about Utah. But generally, what would it actually mean to have a fully funded system? Would I suddenly be flying around the roads in my electric car with no traffic or what? A fully funded, well-operating transportation system is going to be some combination of safer roads that are better maintained, that are the size that they need to be. And that's a pretty contentious issue. So one that has alternatives, one where you can, you know, take a bus instead of driving, and it is nearly as efficient, if not just as efficient um, as getting in your car, something that's a little more well-balanced, I think is the general thrust of what I'm hearing people want. So let's discuss this proposal that is in the works. It should be introduced, I'm told, in a couple of weeks. But in legislative world, that can change. So it's very iffy at this point. But the proposal would increase fees on gas. But then also there's a lot of other fees that would be included in this on companies and technology and delivery. Nate, talk a little bit about that range of fees. Well, let's pull this apart here. So the first thing, a fee on gas, right? Like we mentioned before, there's already a gas tax. And we know that voters, they've been asked in the past to raise it and haven't. Legislators don't want to try again. They think that that's not going to go their way. So a gas fee, because of how the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights works, um, they don't need to go to voters on that. And you know, depending on how big they get on this, I think it could be a very big deal. If it's significant, it would raise a lot of revenue immediately. It would get people out of their cars probably because people couldn't afford to drive more. And that would actually fit in with the state's climate goals, right? That would be a good thing in that regard, but it would also be probably pretty unpopular with the public. The second piece of this, the fees on, you know, Amazon and, and DoorDash and stuff and electric vehicles for that matter too, that is really looking at the future, right? This is them trying to build a new funding system for the long term here, something where they're looking at everyone who uses the road and they're trying to figure out how to extract revenue from it so that you know they don't have to come back and try to rebuild the system in a couple of years, right? They have a trifecta right now, and I think they want to use it. Well, that's going to be really interesting to see how people react, because I could see some folks getting on board with the idea that we need to get revenue from these new ways that people are using the system. But as you mentioned, Some of these are really going to hit people hard. A fee can be regressive. Think about who needs to drive, often people in working class jobs. The other thing is that like companies like Amazon, et cetera, tend to really advertise the fact that you're paying a fee. Like they don't like those fees. So we've seen like DoorDash, when Denver has instituted a fee, puts it right there on your bill in huge letters. Here's the Denver fee. So if this were to pass... Is this something where people are going to be so impressed by the results that they kind of forget that they hate fees or maybe not? Some of those companies, you know, DoorDash and Grubhub, you know, they deliver food to your home. That's been really popular, especially during COVID-19 when people can't go out. And that was a point Jesse Mallory made to me. He is the state director for the conservative group Americans for Prosperity. That group strongly pushes ballot initiatives to stop this type of thing, like fee increases and tax increases Mm. and things. And so he thinks Democrats are being hypocritical with this whole effort. When they say that the focus of this legislative session is to help communities on the margins and small businesses, the conflicting message it sends to then say, oh, but... 
we're going to add these transportation fee increases on everybody, which do more than just hit people at the pump, increases the cost of deliveries, groceries, uh, RTD, everything. I mean, the cost of everything goes up. And when you have this many people who are living on the margins in this difficult environment, it's hard to sell to them that, hey, I'm here looking out for you doing all these things because you need help. But P.S., you can pay more. I mean, it, it doesn't work. It's either or. Well, that really speaks to me to this bigger point that Democrats and lawmakers in trying to do this are playing with a double-edged sword. It might finally get things done, but we've seen evidence recently that voters are really not a big fan of fees collectively. They they passed in Colorado this ballot initiative that says that essentially the lawmakers need the permission of the voters to create new fees, just like they do with uh, raising taxes. And a lot of people may think that that would actually apply in a situation like this, where the government's trying to raise a significant amount of new money from these fees. But for some various legal reasons, that doesn't apply to this situation. Lawmakers won't need permission. Maybe, Nate, you can explain that because the proposal Andy's talking about, it was on the ballot this November. So a lot of people may remember voting for or against it. And I know when this proposal first came out or you know people were talking about it, I was like, wait, what about that ballot initiative? But explain how they can do this legally. So the ballot initiative requires voter approval for any new enterprises, government enterprises that collect fees over a certain amount. And that's that's key here because uh, the state already has a handful of transportation related enterprises that could implement and collect these fees. So because this is not a new enterprise is kind of the key language here. Right. I mean, there still might be a legal challenge to it, but that is what legislators have told me. To make this even more interesting politically and policy-wise, this is not just about fees and how much they should be increased and where, it's also how the money will be spent. So when I was talking to Democratic Senator Faith Winter, who will be one of the main sponsors of the bill, she said this idea is not just, hey, we'll raise a bunch more money. It, there's going to be incentives and kind of requirements to spend it in certain ways. That may be controversial, too. Yeah, we don't know a whole lot about this yet. We'll have to wait to see what the legislation says. But you know, listening to a handful of legislative preview events, it, it's clear that the legislators here that are behind this, they're not just going to hand this money over to CDOT. The state has these big climate goals, right? We're supposed to reduce emissions, both from things like oil and gas extraction, but also from transportation. Transportation is a really difficult problem here in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and other pollutions. And so by making roads wider, you're going to incentivize people to drive more. So they want to avoid that. How they do that is going to be really critical. One key way could be to increase money for transit. That's an effective way to get people out of their cars. But we also know that Coloradans really like to drive. <laughs> Just look at how this state has been built. This could be a key point of tension here. And I don't think it'll fall particularly on party lines. That's going to be something to watch is how much money goes to transit, how much money goes to roads themselves. The key here in understanding this tension is, I think on the more progressive side, there's a belief that the way that we live needs to change. We can't keep driving everywhere. And I think there's going to be a lot of pushback to that. CPR's Nathaniel Minor, Benta Berkland, 
and Andrew Kenny with an excerpt of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Hear the full episode through Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, or at CPR.org. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with how the Peace Corps is reimagining its role. I'm Ryan Warner, here with CPR News and KRCC. You may know Chef Andrew Zimmern from his TV show Bizarre Foods, but behind the jovial traveler is another story. I didn't get sober until I was 30. It was horrific. You know, I would steal bottles of Comet cleanser to sprinkle it around the clothes that I slept on every night so the rats and roaches wouldn't cross over me when I passed out. Andrew Zimmern kicks off a new season of Back From Broken. Listen free wherever you get your podcasts and at backfrombroken.org. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. 60 years ago today, President John F. Kennedy signed an executive order to create the Peace Corps. It will not be easy. None of the men and women will be paid a salary. They will live at the same level as the citizens of the country which they're sent to, doing the same work, eating the same food, speaking the same language. Well, around this time last year, some of the Peace Corps' most recent volunteers, Dylan Evans and Hunter Harold, got orders to pack up and leave their assignments in Kosovo because of the pandemic. They returned to Littleton. Evans and Harold met during training. They were assigned to teach English. Evans went to a city in the center of Kosovo that had been hard hit by the war in the late 1990s. People have described it as essentially the trauma center of that whole episode. Uh, And and I, I think I would agree with that for sure. I don't recall ever meeting anyone who did not have some direct kind of relationship with the conflict. They had lost a family member or, or they had to flee. Despite that trauma, she says, the Kosovars were friendly to a newcomer who'd never been outside the United States before. Where I was from, would I expect to go to a, into a coffee shop and people, you know, wanted, wanting to buy me coffee and then like hear my life story. That would never, that would never have happened. And so people were so just welcoming and, and wanting to know you and, and wanting to be friends. Meanwhile, Hunter Harold lived in western Kosovo, in a city where Albanians were brutalized during the war. During the conflict, it was illegal for Albanians to be teachers, let alone to teach English. So you would have very, very brave people teach in their homes. If they were found, their home would have been burned down and many of the family members killed. Now the city is a bastion of Albanian culture. Many of Harold's best memories are in the classroom there. Just kind of the days with some of the kids, on the good days, right, of teaching my kids, because I had a few classes that were just outstanding, and it was a blast to go and teach. Evans loved teaching, too, even giving lessons to the little girl in her host family. Bora was my heart and soul, just the cutest little girl, but she is now, I mean, she's speaking English, she is doing doing the best, she's the best in her class, she watches YouTube in English all the time. She is incredible, and she's about six, I want to say six years old, but she might be seven now. When the pandemic hit last year, there were only a few hours to pack up and leave. What really personally hurt the most was not being able to say goodbye to the two women I worked with and then my kids. Because I even I even have a picture of them, of my homeroom that I would go and see every day and hang out. So yeah, not getting to say goodbye to the kids was the worst. 
When Peace Corps officials called Evans to Kosovo's capital, Pristina, she wasn't even sure if she was leaving her assignment for good. It was almost like a, you know, goodbye for the weekend, sort of. I didn't actually get to say like a proper goodbye. I would like, you know, when things are a bit more stable to at some point hopefully go back and like actually get some closure with them. I think that would be really nice. I mentioned that Harold and Evans moved back to Littleton. And just last Friday, they picked up their marriage license. As tumultuous as the pandemic has been for Peace Corps' people, it has also created some space to consider how the agency could be better, more inclusive, more effective. Filmmaker Alana DeJoseph of Denver served in Mali from 1992 to 1994 and produced a documentary about the Corps' history called A Towering Task. And Alana, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. Let's hone in on your time in Africa. Is there an experience or interaction that's etched in your memory? Um, Well, all of them really are. That whole time is very etched in my memory. And I think any Peace Corps volunteer you ask will say it's a it was a transformative time in their lives, whether they had a good time or a bad time. It certainly impacts the rest of their lives. For me, I was a a small enterprise development advisor. It was the late 80s, early 90s. We all had business degrees and uh, there was focus on microfinance and revolving loan funds. And um, I was assigned to a small village, a thousand people in uh, in the southern part of Mali. I uh, had the traditional poster experience, living in a mud hut with a straw roof and um, carrying my water in a bucket on my head from the pump. And uh, and so I had these grand notions. I hear I had my business degrees. H- how was I gonna support um, this village? How was I gonna be a- useful in any way to this village? And uh, And so I, uh, gathered with a women's group and uh, asked them, what do you want? What do you need? And um, of course, my language was very limited. The national language of uh, Mali is French, but there are over um, 16 different languages in Mali. In my village, there were two French speakers and the rest were uh, Bambara speakers. And my Bambara was very, very limited. So I tried to understand what was needed. And um, the women talked about wanting uh, a diesel mill so that they wouldn't have to pound the millet. And uh, we did a feasibility study. And um, so I came up with my business solution for the whole thing, thinking, okay, this needs to be a a revolving loan fund for the women. And I kept suggesting it, but nobody really seemed to bite. And I spent my two years uh, struggling with that. And everybody was really friendly and really nice and really happy to have me there. But somehow my revolving loan fund idea just didn't take off. Hmm. And it was a very humbling Peace Corps experience, and um, which is great. You know, that's what Peace Corps is all about. It's, it's humbling. It teaches you tenacity. And it was shortly before I left that the women came to me and said, we're so sorry that we couldn't make your, your revolving loan fund work. Um, but we've tried this before. And last time, the woman who held the, uh, the funds uh, was the wife of the village eldest. And at some point, the village eldest just said, give me the money. And she had no choice but to give him the money. And so the women lost all their money. And that's why oh. they didn't want to do that again. But it took two years to find that out. And that to me encapsulates uh, the humbling nature of the Peace Corps. So they were growing millet, I think you said. And did they at all get the diesel for the processing? Um, so uh, my village never ended up with a diesel mill. Uh, they n- were never able to pull those funds together when I was there. I don't know what the case is now. I hope that they did. There was a neighboring village that was about uh, five kilometers in Mali. Everything was measured in kilometers, of course, um, away. And um, so roughly 
three some odd miles and um, and they had a diesel mill. So the women from my village would carry their millet to that neighboring village and then get it milled there. I think that one of your takeaways thus was patience and listening. And we yes. talked recently to another evacuated Peace Corps volunteer. His name is Calvin Brophy. He works in northern Ethiopia on farming projects and taught English. And uh, indeed, he says he learned patience. I was the type of person that I wanted to get to my site and I wanted to get to work as soon as I could. Um, and then trying to understand that like, I have to build up this reputation of trust in my community. You got to hang out for a little bit. You got to talk to them. You got to show them that you're trying to learn the language. You're trying to get to know their community. And so, yeah, I think patience was a really big thing. 60 years now into the Peace Corps, an advisory group is recommending some changes, including the need to address systemic racism. Uh, how has that problem shown up in the Peace Corps? Well, the Peace Corps has had good intentions all along, and we all know where they lead. <laughs> um, but it also has had decent structure. So when it was founded, um, the you know the first director of the Peace Corps was Sergeant Shriver, brother-in-law to John F. Kennedy, but also John F. Kennedy's civil rights guy, um, along with Harris Wofford, who was also John F. Kennedy's civil rights guy during the his campaign. So these guys knew about the importance of setting up systems that would be inclusive. And um, early staff was somewhat diverse. Uh, Franklin Williams, also from the civil rights movement, was in there and several other people. Um, and they tried recruiting from historically black colleges. But it, when the agency was founded, it was done in such uh, under such time pressure, they wanted to make sure that once the executive order was signed, they would have volunteers on the ground before the legislation came up in Congress for voting because it's much harder to vote down legislation when you already have the volunteers on the ground. Mm. And so they might have had some blind spots in how, how this was developed because, of course, they brought in the leading thinkers of every field. Shriver was famous for pulling people from anywhere overnight out of thriving careers to come work for the Peace Corps. And the Peace Corps was this exciting place where everybody wanted to be. But at the same time, it isn't easy to take two years out of your life and join the Peace Corps and not make an income. You you know, mind you, you're financially supported while you're there. Um, you get a stipend, a living stipend, and uh, and then you get a readjustment allowance when you come back. But for a lot of families, going out and not building income and building a career, unless you want to go into the Foreign Service, of course, is very difficult to do. And so the agency is looking at itself structurally. What can it do to be more inclusive economically, um, racially, in general, to really reflect America when it's out there? And it's not easy. And are there suggestions that you could give us an example of, for instance? Is there some talk that it shouldn't be a two-year commitment? What are the discussions, just briefly? Sure. So, so Peace Corps has a couple of uh, programs. Actually, it has the regular Peace Corps volunteer program where you're there for 27 months, so two years and three months of training. And then there's also Peace Corps Response, which are uh, shorter programs. Oh. Oftentimes it's for returned Peace Corps volunteers. Um, and those programs can be three months to a year or even longer. Uh, so that's one way of being able to tinker a little bit more with who can join the Peace Corps and what timing it takes. The other things are financial. You know, what kind of uh, college uh, loan forgiveness can you give? Uh, what, uh, uh, for example, when Peace Corps volunteers come back, they have... Uh, 
competitive non-competitive eligibility status for a while. So that means, you know, like the military, when people come back, their their resume goes on top of the pile mm. um, for that period of time. And um, there's talk about extending that period. There's talk about extending healthcare benefits because, of course, healthcare is a huge problem for a lot of volunteers when they come back um, to. Uh, come back from two years of being in countries that have lots of illnesses and then try to reintegrate into the healthcare system here in the U.S. can be very challenging. As I understand it, around 40% of Peace Corps volunteers work in education, another 20% on health projects. But this report that is taking stock of Peace Corps 60 years on suggests getting folks into what are described as more urgent projects. What's an example? Well, I think uh, this pandemic has definitely been an eye-opener for a lot of people. So Peace Corps did a lot of clinical work early on when it was founded. There were doctors that were volunteers. There were nurses that were volunteers. And they were working in clinical capacities. And um, that uh, drifted away. And that might be part of us being a litigious society. It might hmm. be uh, the challenges of putting young people out there in these kinds of settings. Um, and so volunteers still work in the health sector, but it's more um, public health that doesn't involve actual clinical functions. So there's a push towards more of that uh, could be helpful in pandemic ses- settings so that while volunteers were evacuated due to the pandemic and that does signal that makes it very a lot of volunteers were very concerned about that because they didn't want to signal to their communities when the going gets tough, I'm leaving. But the Peace Corps really had no choice but to evacuate volunteers because otherwise they would not have been able to get to them anymore when airports shut down. And if there were any emergencies, it would have been really difficult. But um, so doing real clinical functions could be really good. Mm. Climate change is a global problem and Peace Corps is a global program that helps communicate on a people to people level. So getting volunteers out in the forefront of climate change a little bit more visibly. And in many ways, you can argue Peace Corps volunteers have been there since the beginning. Peace Corps volunteers were in agriculture, in in, in forestry, in fisheries uh, since the founding and uh, really in the countries that are bearing the brunt of climate change. But that was before that term existed. So there might be more urgent ways of making that happen. I mean, it's fascinating in a way because the United States is such a global contributor to greenhouse gases. That yes. You've got you've got essentially in Peace Corps volunteers emissaries from the country that is helping contribute to the problem, aiding the countries that might most suffer from that behavior. A little bit of an irony there, don't you think? Absolutely. And I think it's a struggle for a lot of Peace Corps volunteers when they're in the field. You never, nobody questions the Peace Corps and serving in the Peace Corps as much as Peace Corps volunteers do while they're in the field. And for me, the way I resolve that, so Mali is uh, consistently one of the poorest countries in the world. And you could argue that a lot of that has grown out of colonialism, has grown out of the way many African countries have been treated by the Western world. And so here I am, a Westerner, who's trying to support my community, this Malian community, in in becoming more empowered. And how do I do that when policies that my government does might still be impacting the country in negative ways? And um, And I think the way most volunteers resolve that for themselves is that this Peace Corps is a people-to-people program. It's politically independent for a very specific reason because uh, volunteers like uh, your interviewees before said they have to build up trust with the people that they work with. And they're there really to to, uh, 
do whatever the community wants them to do for support. So, so Peace Corps independence then allows you to find that we always will need that people to people connection, no matter what the governments are doing around the world, we need to understand each other. In just a few seconds, uh, what do you think is a way to re-inspire people towards Peace Corps service? Again, just just briefly. Sure. Well, we've spent the last years turning inward and building walls, while at the same time, global problems are bearing down on us as a global community. Pandemics, climate change, migration, all of those are problems that have to be addressed by a global community. And if we don't understand each other, if we don't understand each other on a personal level, it'll be that much harder for the governments to communicate with each other. And so going out there, getting out of your comfort zone, getting out of your American mindset and seeing America from the outside and then seeing other cultures really empowers the rest of your life because you will never read another newspaper about another country or a country that you served in and not have a much deeper understanding because mm. for me Bintu Bagayogo was there she was my friend and I understand what a Malian woman in a small village goes through Alana De Joseph of Denver was a Peace Corps volunteer in Mali from 1992 to 1994 she directed a documentary about the corps called A Towering Task today the Peace Corps turn 60. Not sure about you, but music has been a great comfort during the pandemic. It's why, as we approach a year of COVID in Colorado, we're going to do a little counter-programming, literally, an occasional series with DJs around the state sharing playlists that have helped them and their audiences cope. And up first is my CPR colleague Bruce Trujillo, Assistant Program Director at Indy 1023. And this is her first pick, The Way by Chicano Batman. Bruce, welcome. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm grateful for your time. This is one of your go-to songs for a little joy during the pandemic. What do you love about The Way? All right. So Chicano Batman just released their fourth studio album, Invisible People. And it's a bit of a sonic shift for the band. If you're an older fan, you kind of know. But this song, I think, has a good connection to their older stuff. And it's a nice bridge into their newer sound. It also has such a deep meaning. It's basically just like speaking to the divine feminine, show us the way to live and be like in a good way. And uh, I identify as a Chicana. And so having this song, it's like basically the root of that entire meaning. And so it became a, a really beautiful song to listen to a lot. This entire album has been great, but The Way is the one. It sounds like it makes you want to lead a better life or or it sort of speaks to your ideal self. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, definitely. It's just a reminder of the things that are important. The chorus is live and love, laugh and play, smile all day. Especially during this summer where everything was 
you know, we're still in a pandemic, all of these peaceful protests happening all over the country. It's like just a good reminder, like these are the things that matter and we're going to get through it. Another one of your picks, an artist based in Paris named La Dame Blanche, uh, and the song is Cogelo con Calma. Bruce, the title of that song translates to Take It Easy. Although I'm not sure this song wants us to do that. Kind of a dancey mix there. Does La Dame Blanche help you take it easy? Well, this is my introduction to La Dame Blanche. She's a trap Cubana artist. She does reside in Paris at this point. But she makes trap music. She released another album this September called Ella celebrating women going through different struggles. But Cogelo Can Calma is really talking about three different stories where people persevere through whatever situation they're going through. So that in and of itself is wonderful. But that beat, you hear the horns come in, the bump, bump, bump. You got to start dancing immediately. So this is one that I tell everybody, favorite song of 2020, hands down. I listen to it all the time. And it was a great introduction to her. She's already got a couple of albums out now, but you can hear her most weeks on Especial on MD1023. The program you host. Exactly. Bruce, I always learn something when I listen to indie. Trap music, subgenre of hip-hop from the southern Mm -hmm. United States. Has it been difficult to keep up with new music during the pandemic? Absolutely not. The amount of good music that has come out in the past year is blowing my mind. And I think that we're in for a really good year in 2021 as well, because a lot of artists sat on their new releases because they were kind of waiting for the pandemic to wrap up and go away. And here we are almost a year later. So all of these artists have this great music that they've been holding onto that they're releasing now. But we have so many new ads at Indie 1023. And specifically for Especial, I'm still adding almost five new songs a week. It's really difficult to keep up with how much good music is coming out right now. Which I think demonstrates that although many artists are struggling because you have the loss of the touring ability mm-hmm. and and you know live shows, that it is a creative time. It's a time where artists have to make music. Do you think that's true? I mean, I've heard that from some artists who've been on our show. I think for a lot of artists it is, and it's a time to really refine what they're doing, maybe rethink what they're doing, learn new skills. That's been something I've been seeing a lot with our local 303 artists is, okay, I wanted to learn how to do production for myself. Mm. Well, now I have the time. And so they're able to do this and really make the music that they want to make as opposed to putting it into somebody else's hands and hoping for the best. So I think it is definitely a creative time and people are able to write. This is a totally new experience that everyone's involved in. So a lot of reflection and really great work coming out of such a crazy situation. Hmm. 
We are counter-programming the pandemic this time with Bruce Trujillo from Indy 1023, a service of CPR. One more pick. Uh, this is Nada by Lido Pimienta, originally from Colombia, now based in Canada. What keeps bringing you back to this track? This is my album of 2020, Miss Colombia. She just integrates so many different sounds, and it's kind of like going to ceremony or something like that. She, The way she sings, the sounds that are behind her, and it keeps you enraptured. And the music video for this one as well is just so hypnotizing. She considers herself just an experimental artist, and so she puts whatever she wants into her music, and it just comes together so beautifully. so much for sharing these count can we call them counter pandemic songs absolutely yeah. kind of it, it gets you through it. it gets you up and dancing it doesn't make you so feel so alone or anything like that and ryan i would be remiss if i didn't mention also um some amazing local music that came out last year including pinkocks they have a couple new singles los mocochetes and katiria who was recently a local 303 artist with us so i didn't want to go without giving some local love uh, thank you so magnanimous uh, nice to speak with you you as well. Thanks, Ryan. Trujillo is Assistant Program Director at Indy 1023, a service of Colorado Public Radio. She helped us launch a pandemic escape playlist on CPR's Spotify account. You can listen to it at CPR.org, and we'll add more tracks as the series continues. Thanks to the team that's gotten Colorado Matters through the pandemic. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Daniel Mesher. This is CPR News and KRCC.